The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Yeah, I have. Um, I was just kind of happy to be listening to you, David. It's uh, unfortunate I have to speak now. <laughs> so one thing I want to start with maybe is our relationship as individuals, our relationship to these texts. You can hear in the way that Ying, Kim, David, and I are relating to them that they're meaningful for us and that they've been an integral part of our practice and um, has been a way in which we've kind of engaged with Buddhism is partly through the texts. But there are plenty of people and plenty of teachers who don't find their way into practice is through the texts. So I, myself, and I think all my co-teachers would agree, we don't right now want to say this is the only way. But instead, for all of us to find our relationship to these texts, how are they a support for our practice? And how might they be something that um, helps us to go deeper and maybe find some connection to the practice that maybe we didn't before. And then maybe I'll share this uh, little story that when I first started reading the suttas, this was uh, a number of years ago, and I didn't, and I felt so inspired. And in my mind, I didn't know I had this idea, but I had this idea like, finally, like, all the answers to all my questions, life's questions are going to be here and it's going to be in a numbered list. It's going to be neat and tidy. I just have to find the right list. And that was kind of like, I didn't realize I had it, but I did until I found a list that um, contradicted another list. They had two different things. I'm like, oh my goodness. And I, I just kind of like felt confused and with doubt and like, wait a minute, I was hope I had holding on to this idea that everything would somehow make sense and be neat and tidy. And so I just offer this, that for each one of us to find our way, our relationships to the text, because uh, what we don't want to do, Kim, Yang, David, and I, we don't want to um, encourage a certain fundamentalism or a dogmatism, like, okay, we're holding on to this and this is the truth and, you know, a reason for us to sow divisiveness or uh, some separation or something like that. So we have an emphasis on practice and with um, text. So not, we're not scholars, you know, we don't earn our livings as a uh, being pretend, uh, scholars of Buddhism, but we are practitioners. So I kind of want to encourage all of us to uh, uh, investigate for ourselves what our relationship is. And then maybe I would say that through the years, like in Southeast Asia, you know, through these thousands of years, there has been an emphasis on practice more than doctrine. And this is a little bit different than the Abrahamic religions, that there is, it's more about orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy. So it's, we don't, um, in Buddhism, the texts, the books aren't held up in the same way in which you might find some other religions, you know, the Bible, for example, or the 
you know, whatever religious text that might be, they might hold them up in a way. And there, in Buddhism, there's a different relationship. It's more what you do and your practice and your views, these types of things. So I'm putting that in as a kind of a placeholder. But then I want to say, what what is, uh, how did we get here? Like, how do we even, these books that uh, Kim held up, but thank you, Kim, for doing it. That was kind of fun for me to, to kind of like re- be reminded, these are like physical objects we have today. But how did we get here? And first of all, I'll start by saying that the suttas um, were composed, compiled, edited. We don't know exactly by, um, when I'm using this word composed, compiled, edited, that um, maybe I'll, I'll say this briefly. You know how when in English, when we're reading English and you can, uh, when you read a text, if you don't know anything about the text, but it was written in the Victorian era, you kind of have a feeling like, oh, this was written before. I can just tell by the way their use of their words and kind of the sentence is. So there are scholars who can do this with Pali too, who can tell, oh, okay, there's um, some texts that have older use, the way they're using the verbs and the vocabulary is older or this is newer. So there are some scholars who do this. It's nowhere definitive. It's nowhere um, like very clear, like this is early and this is late in terms of the strata of what's in the Pali canon. But there is a sense of there is some strata. And uh, maybe I'll just leave it at that. And we kind of, um, as practitioners, we have to decide amongst ourselves of whether we are going to try to tease apart earlier from later or whether we're going to accept everything that's there or how we're going to hold this. So um, the suttas are are composed, compiled, edited, whenever they were. We know that it's from a people that were quite distant from our culture and times. Thousands of years a hundred generations. Can you think about that? So like you have our parents, great parents, great grandparents, you know, go back a hundred. So there's been um, through the ages, they've been passed down as Kim said, kind of warm hand to warm hand. But when we read them, we have to be reminded that the times were different then and then, than they are now. So sometimes we bring our modern 21st century ideas about what should be in a text, what a religion should be, how people should be treated, these types of things, we bring them to these texts from thousands of years ago. And we might find ourselves getting confused or disappointed or, I don't know, just to be aware of that. Okay, so the Buddha. The way that I think about it is that he lived in, you know, the year minus 4,400. I use this word like minus 400. So kind of like help me keep it in this time frame. So minus 400 BCE. And then just after the Buddha's death, there was this, what's called the first council is the, um, the, some of the awakened people who were some of the followers of the Buddha got together, said, okay, we should preserve these teachings. And they, um, and the tradition holds that Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, who had been there during these teachings, um, recited them. 
and people listen to them and memorize them. And then Upali uh, recited what was for the Vinaya. So Ananda just did the one basket. Upali, who interestingly was a barber, and the story is is because uh, he would shave everybody's head as part of uh, being ordained. So he he was the guy that shaved everybody's head. So um, he was in the he was there, and so he heard uh, the Vinaya teachings. The Abhidhamma, the third basket, is done sometime later. But in the beginning, the, um, the contents of the first two baskets are held right after the, the Buddha died. Writing probably existed in India at this time. We're not exactly sure. But if it did, it was just done for commerce for, or you know, like collecting taxes or something like that, writing IOU notes or something like that. Certainly something as important as religious texts would not have been preserved in writing. It was felt this was something, writing was for them mundane, profane, and uh, oral recitation was for the religious texts. Maybe I'll say, um, oh, maybe I'll say um, uh, just a bit about um, this oral recitation. So at that time, there was this hereditary priestly caste in India, the Brahmins. And way before Buddhism, they preserved their texts orally. And this was like the family occupation. This was their trade to memorize texts. So starting from before the Buddha and even into uh, modern times. And fascinating, just like maybe some of you have heard that um, scientists like to put long-term meditators, like some of these Tibetan monks, put them into scanners and scan their brains and they're reporting all the differences. Well, they're doing the same thing with some of these people who have been, their life work is to memorize texts, put them in scanners. And I'm seeing that they also, their brain is a little bit different than ours, that they have uh, certain parts of their brain that are uh, more developed. So just to say that this uh, idea of oral recitation is not only something that happened thousands of years ago, but that continues today and that people uh, have this capacity to do this. So getting back to the um, memorizing the text, there was this first council soon after the Buddha died. 70 years later, this is what the tradition holds, that uh, seemed like some monks were misbehaving a little bit or doing something that wasn't quite right. So um, they said, let's get together and remind ourselves of the rules, uh, the Vinaya and the Dhamma. And then this continued for, um, and then I guess there was like, oh, okay, that this uh, works. And then um, I think there was a third council is then when they started to be a break in the uh, Sangha. That's when there's a schism. And then the, um, they go off into different directions. So now we have um, what at that time is not yet the Theravada tradition, but one can say becomes the Theravada, but then there's some other um, schools that go in the other direction. There's a number of branches and there's a, oh, maybe, I think there's 18 different schools at one time. This is what is believed. And the Pali canon is what has been preserved by one of those 18 schools. The others have been lost in their entirety. Let me say this. Their entirety has been lost. We have bits and pieces from some of the other uh, schools. Some of what's from the other schools were preserved in, in Sanskrit as opposed to Pali. Maybe I'll say something like um, 
the relationship between Sanskrit and Pali is kind of like the relationship between Latin and French. So where Latin's a little more complicated and French is a little bit easier, that's similar to Sanskrit and Pali. The ones that were preserved in Sanskrit um, got translated into Chinese. The Sanskrit originals have been lost, most of them, not all of them, but we mostly have the, what's been preserved in Chinese, and those are the Akamans. So we have like these parallel texts so we have the Pali Canon, and then we have the Agamas. But the Agamas are from different schools. Some are from the Sarvastivadans, some from the Muller Sarvastivadans, those types of things. So what's fascinating is so there's the Second Council, the Third Council, the Fourth Council. The Sixth Council, maybe some of you were alive, 1954, not so long ago was uh, happened in Burma where people from um, Burmese countries came together and they recited the Vinaya and the Dhamma. And I, I'm assuming they did the Abhidhamma at that time as well. And they did some of the commentarial texts. And this was in uh, Burma. It started in May, 1954, and it took them two years to kind of go through this. And they ended in uh, 1956. And then the council kind of approved the texts and then they got written down using modern printing um, methods. So to talk a little, I'm just going to say a little bit more now about this memorization. So we had people in 1954 that had memorized. I, I think my understanding is there was a monk in Burma who had memorized. If I had heard the entire Tipitaka, but maybe it was just the Dhamma uh, sorry, Sutta Pitaka, the one, I'm, I'm not sure. But when we read the text, some of you who are familiar with it might notice that there's, we can tell that they're oral texts because there's a lot of repetition. And there's a repetition helps in a number of ways that kind of creates a rhythm, as well as there's a way in which the, um, if you say something more than once, right, you're more likely to remember it. But repetition in terms of like whole paragraphs, but there's also repetitions of the first sound of the word, like they choose words, like so there's an alliteration. There's repetition, the sounds in the middle of the word. And there's also repetition, the sound at the end of the word, also known as rhyming. So there's a certain way in which um, the texts have been preserved not only is there repetition, but there's also what's called kind of like waxing syllables. So this idea, sometimes if you see, um, there's a long list of synonyms. In Pali, that synonym, the word with the fewest number of syllables is first, and then the word with the longest number of syllables is last. And that gives a certain meter, a certain cadence to the way that the, um, the words are in Pali. So we don't really have that in English, of course, the English translations. So as um, we've been talking about, recitation was used to preserve the text for hundreds of years before they got written down. They got written down probably in the minus 100s in the first century BCE. Um, it's likely that other parts, like little bits, were written down here and there before then, but the whole canon probably got written around that time. So it's hundreds of years of just oral recitation. So they're reciting to preserve the text, but also just as uh, 
David did for us. The recitation has been always a part of the Buddhist tradition, not only as part of practice, but um, there's even a sutta that's uh, where the somebody overhears the Buddha saying out loud a sutta to himself as kind of as part of a practice. And there's um, even like to do some recitation is an antidote for drowsiness. It's kind of like an instruction that's given. Or I'll just say for myself, I had memorized uh, the Metta Sutta in English and would uh, chant that to myself as a way to kind of like help the mind settle and kind of the heart soften. So maybe some of you have that uh, similar experience. Maybe I'll just end with just a few words um, to contrast uh, the studies in Pali and Pali Canon compared to like biblical studies is so relatively new, so far behind biblical studies. Biblical studies have been happening for hundreds of years. We would say that um, the Pali Text Society was uh, formed in the late 1800s uh, with the idea of let's uh, look at these texts and translate them into English. And the first Pali English dictionary didn't exist until 1874. And kind of the gold standard Pali English dictionary right now that was uh, written in 1925, almost 100 years ago. So there isn't, a, I mean, the a number of scholars that we have working on this is not a lot. It's um, not easy to find a place where you can learn Pali, for example. Sanskrit's a little bit easier. But um, the idea that the, there's a paucity of research, there's a paucity of um, a lot of work being done but right now as many of you know it's so exciting because right now i feel like in these past 10 years there's been this resurgence of interest and biko and alio is doing one of them somebody mentioned um joseph goldstein who was inspired by biko and alio's book to then kind of turn it into a dharma teacher talk and stuff like this so i feel it's kind of exciting that right now uh these texts are really coming alive and getting retranslated because Sujato's translations just Sutta Central, which we'll talk about later, just went live, what, three years ago? Something like this. I don't know how many years ago, something like this. So you can hear my kind of like enthusiasm about this. So just wanted to share a little bit about how we got here, where we have these uh, books. So, and maybe um, I'll turn it over to David now. Yeah, Diana may have, uh, for reasons of time, not shared something we wanted to share, which was sort of a, um, an idea about, do you want to go back real quickly, Diana? I think it's worth it. I'm sorry. Uh, like I had this here. And then, okay. So how do they preserve them? Clearly, they didn't have paper back then. And they wrote them on palm leaves. And so here is um, something that David had. It's hard, difficult for me to hold them with one hand, but here is um, something. And then David can show you um, an up-close photo of this. So what David uh, is showing right now is, uh, do you want to say anything? Uh, interestingly, these were found at a garage sale in Oregon. Um, but these were probably, they probably are 100 years old, and they represent uh, a way that these teachings were shared. These were probably, these probably served as a, as a memory, as a mnemonic aid 
for monks providing various uh, blessings and other ritual observances. I'll give a, just a couple close-ups so you can see some of the beautiful hand that they're prescribed in. These were cut into palm leaves and then brushed with um, charcoal, or what do we call it, uh, soot, to, so that they would stay in these leaves. And uh, just one more so you can get a sense of kind of the different um, writing that turns up in this one of which, and there are many of these, I gather that they can be found in markets, you know, in Southeast Asia, having found their way uh, out of their, you know, one, one time use into sort of a, a trade in these objects. Anyway, we wanted to share that with you uh, before um, proceeding to some, you know, Q&A. So if there are questions, again, if people want to raise their hands, we, we, we'd like to think that some people say, lucky you, you know, my first, I got to say, when I first, these came into my possession, my first impulse was to give them back, you know, find a place for them to be held in the community and maybe be, be of use. So it's wonderful to share them with you because in a way that's, uh, I think, uh, sort of an appropriate way of sharing. We plan to eventually share them with a appropriate monastery or something where they can be kept. Uh, yeah, Wayne, questions? Hi. Well, guy, I just want to say again, as somebody said, this is amazing. Um, my, I have a kind of a personal question. Um, about 25 years ago, I suffered a stroke that occurred, I understand, in the hippocampus of my brain. And um, my short-term, it affected my short-term memory. And so my memory is just not good. And, uh, you know, I keep hearing so much about memorization and stuff like that. And I'm just wondering if you could say something that, um, that I can tell myself <laughs> to keep me going, or maybe that's why I've, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know quite what I'm asking, but, uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I love it. It's a wonderful question. And I think one thing we learn in understanding that these teachings were passed on through millennia, principally by chanting, and that they still are, is, and we recognize this in other world wisdom traditions and elsewhere, that um, that the human mind's capacity for memorization is absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, you know, it's it's vast. The the Odyssey, the Iliad, were apparently memorized in their entirety. People still, regular people, still memorize the Quran. That's a can be a part of uh, Islamic practice today. So, and then the other thing that we know about the mind, and I mention these not because they're just interesting factoids, but because they also um, are related to the Buddha's insights into the way the mind works and its plasticity, recognized thousands of years ago, is how powerful the mind is at replacing lost capacity with new capacity, building new habits in the place of old habits, or in the case perhaps of uh, some of your memory, uh, you know, finding ways to strengthen uh, capacities that have been weakened either by natural change, by aging, or by, you know, the mind's um, engagement elsewhere. So I think the power of the human mind, the special nature, the special qualities of the human mind, the ability to reflect on our ability to reflect, which is perhaps not unique to humans, but uniquely important uh, in human life and in um, this, this practice. So that's just a, sort of a riff on that question. Are there other questions? Uh, maybe a couple more to end our day. 
Maybe I'll just add, David, that I'm when you were speaking, Wayne, I thought of a story from the commentaries about uh, a monk who um, was uh, not good at memorization and was a little bit shunned by the other monks because of this. And the but the Buddha um, came and gave him a practice to do. Essentially, he gave him a, yeah a, a specific practice that was well suited to his mind. And the monk ended up waking up uh, before the other monks who were busy with the memorization. So in the end, there's it's the practice that will awaken. And if we can take in enough and hear it, um, as one of the comments said, sometimes just through our heart or through our body, we can take in the teachings in a way that they can be transformed into practice. And in the end, it's the practice that's transformative. So this is not a, a fundamental barrier that you're talking about. Thank you. Yeah, and um, let me let me. I have a couple. I have a thought on that, but let's go to um, uh, Prajit's question. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was actually kind of wondering. Um, um, Diana was mentioning that there's the the Pali Canon and also these uh, sort of the Chinese translation, the Agamas. I was sort of curious to understand. Um, you know, how similar are they? And like, what are like the differences between them at like a high level? Yeah. That's a great question. And, you know, as we put together this class, we thought, oh, there's there's more classes here. You know, we could do this next year with totally different um, sort of focus. And that would be one of them. As Diana mentioned, I see Diana's unmuted, too. But, you know, they, 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 the, the Agamas are a collection drawn from various canons, various collections of different schools, among them the 18 that seem to be, you know, there a few hundred years after the Buddha's death. And they, things are found not only in different places, but sometimes different parts of them are found in different places in the Agamas. And so sometimes they're right where they should be, as it were. But other times, including some very important ones, like the, the discourse on the establishing of mindfulness, there's different pieces in different places, which helps us understand something about how they might have been used in practice. And also just something, you know, the vagaries of time and this vast translation project that resulted in the Agamas in the Chinese translation. Um, and it's their, their translations, I think I'm right, Diane, in saying their translations, not from Pali, but from Sanskrit. So, you know, there's, there's another kind of, um, and Pali and tr- Sanskrit are closely related, but they're not the same. And so that too uh, happens. Maybe I'll just say briefly that this research is just being done now. Before, historically, there just haven't been individuals who could read um, classic Chinese and Sanskrit and Pali and a Western language. There weren't enough people that knew all those languages that were interested to do this. And Biko Analio is one of those people and, um, who, and who is systematically comparing, oh, okay, here's this in the Pali canon, here it is in the Ogamas, how is it different? Sometimes it's just like if there's a list, maybe some of the lists, they're not in the same order. And sometimes there's really big differences. So that's kind of what scholars are doing right now. So let's, uh, we'll, we'll be open for more questions next week, but let's, uh, let's move toward closing. Kim. Okay, wonderful. So we've had a lot of information today um, in various uh, different modes coming in. So we wanted to finish with some uh, kind of a different way to engage with these texts. And 
what we're going to do now is play a chant. Um, one way that uh, these texts, remember, have been passed down is through oral transmission. And some people, you know, this also evokes a very devotional sense in people and helps to memorize, helps to integrate the text. We may not have a lot of experience with this um, as Western practitioners, but it's quite a big thing in Asia, still done today. Um, even lay practitioners would listen to chants and go to the monastery and hear the monks chanting. And this would be a part of their engagement with the practice and with uh, their Buddhist religion. So the chant that we're going to play, it's three minutes long, so I better start it soon. Um, and if you would just listen kind of openly, you know, the intervals that they use are different than are used in Western music and so forth. So just, well, just take it in and the particular chant, by the way, that we're playing is the opening of the Satipatthana Sutta. So you heard it earlier in English. This is in Pali. It's chanted by a Sri Lankan monk. So it's done in the Sri Lankan style. Today in Sri Lanka is the Uposatha day and it's called the Poya day. That's what they say in their language. So we might consider that we're participating today in Poya day. Let me get this set up. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Evang me sutang ekang samayang bhagava kuru subiharati kammasadammang nama Purunang nigamu Tatrako Bhagava Bhikkhu Amante Si Bhikkhavoti Badante Ti Te Bhikkhu Bhagavato Pachasosum Bhagava Ekayano ayang bikkave maggo satanang visuddhya soka paridvanang Samatikamaya dukkadomanasanang atthagamaya nyayasa adhigamaya Nibbanasa satchikiriyaya yadidang Chattaro satipatthana Katami chattaro 
Diana. Oh, I was just uh, enjoying listening to that. Thank you. Thank you. So there was a number of questions that we didn't answer, including some of the specifics, like how do I find this and what is that? So we have a whole nother class uh, next Saturday. And uh, I just want to thank everybody where, uh, for attending. And you'll get an email from us that will have a link to the audio recording and some of the link uh, from what we just heard. You can find the link to that. And, um, and maybe we'll scratch together the poly to uh, yeah we can easily include the poly text great great so what a pleasure what a pleasure to be with you all and we'll see you next saturday thank you take care everyone thank you bye bye if you want you can unmute yourself and we can say goodbye feel free to unmute and say till next week till next week thank you Bye. Bye. Next week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Adios. Bye. Is the